have your Bibles, please open to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. And um, we'll actually um, read verses 1 through 10, but our study will focus on verses 1 through 5. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to whom we did not yield in submission even for a moment, that the truth of the gospel might, might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Please be seated. So I don't know if you uh, have this at home or not, but you often go to uh, homes of Christians, and they have their favorite verses framed on the wall in their offices or in their living rooms, in their hallways, or even restrooms. So I've been to believers' homes, and I've seen uh, John 3.16 on the wall. I've seen Galatians 2.20 on the wall, Psalm 23, uh, verses from Romans 8. But to this date, I've never seen anyone uh, put verse 3 of, Titus, of Galatians 2 on their wall. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. I don't I have not seen one. I doubt anyone here has this verse on their wall. Or we consider one of the verses to even really consider putting up on a wall. My prayer and hope is by the time we're done, you would want this verse on your wall. Right? You want this verse on your wall. You want it in bold letters, 36 font, uh, right, right in front of your house. Um, because it's such an important verse, practically, functionally, for us Christians. This is um, William Wallace crying out freedom, right? This is John Adams at the Continental Congress. When the tide is turning against independence, he makes that great speech about the need for a new nation, governed not by a monarch, but by, but the, by the people uh, of the nation. So this verse has tremendous relevance for every single Christian here. Now, now, this passage tells us so many things. I don't have time 
to explicate all the truths that are in this passage. Now, the one thing, one profound truth that, that, that Paul tells us here is that, that tr- is that the truth is important, that theology is paramount. The gospel is truth, and it is um, important for us Christians. So important that we have to fight for the gospel. We have to uh, fight for the gospel and fight for the one of the most important implications of the gospel, which is freedom. So that's the title of the message, Truth and Freedom. We need to defend the truth of the gospel, and then we need to defend the implication of that truth, which is freedom. We need to do both. Um, so the gospel is that the second person of the Trinity, God himself, became man. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And he died, he went to the cross voluntarily, and he gave himself to die on the cross for our sins. That he drank the cup of God's wrath. He bore our sins on on his flesh, and he became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God, that his perfect righteousness might be imputed to us, and through his death, all our sins were forgiven, and that he was buried, and the third day he rose from the grave, vindicating, giving testimony, declaring that he was indeed the Son of God, and that for anyone who believes in their heart, Romans 10, and confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, that person shall be saved, regardless of his, his or her gender, their socioeconomic status, their, their ethnicity, their righteousness or their sinfulness, regardless of any of these things. If anyone confesses Christ and believes in his or her heart, God grants that person salvation. That is the gospel that we must fight for and defend. So when someone posits that Jesus was not fully God, a liberal does that, we refute it with the Bible. We say, you're a heretic, go home, Jesus was fully God. When someone from the uh, emergent movement uh, discounts uh, substitutionary atonement and the wrath of God, we say, no, the Bible is clear. We defend the gospel because our salvation is at stake. We say, heresy, you are wrong. You know, you go home with that other heretic, right? Someone else says, no, we, are not, we don't have to repent from the seeker-sensitive camp, from the cheap grace camp, that we don't have to repent of sin, we don't have to renounce sin, we can live in sin while pursuing Christ and, and, and enjoy this world while enjoying all the privileges of Christianity. We say that is wrong as well. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the same time, we must defend, fight for and defend the implication of the gospel which is freedom. That we are free from dependence on the works of the law to be approved by God. We are free from having to strive to be righteous before a holy God through obedience. Because of the gospel, it is by grace and it is a gift, we are set free from that legal requirement And now we're able to, through faith alone, 
have a unconditional, eternal, unchanging relationship with the thrice holy God of the scriptures. Now, uh, fighting for the gospel is pretty linear. It's pretty, it's not, it's very packaged. It's, it's very theological and doctrinal. Fighting for the implication of the gospel because it relates to freedom is very complex. There's a thousand and one ways to undermine the gospel in this indirect way. To uh, sever the gospel from the Christian. To limit the freedom of the Christian. There's a thousand and one ways. For us, circumcision is not an issue because... In the first century, the Apostle Paul won the battle. For them, the issue was circumcision. The flashpoint of this controversy, the legalists wanted to, um, to cut off uh, the freedom that Christians had. And, and for them, it was by adding circumcision. Right? And we, uh, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm so thankful that Paul won this battle. Right? Imagine if Paul had lost. I'm going to say this word circumcision more than I have maybe in years. I'm going to say circumcision like a hundred times today. But, I mean, what if Paul had lost this battle? We would have Cornerstone Welcoming Ministry. We would have Setup Ministry. And we'd have Circumcision Ministry. Or after we welcome people into our church, we would have to verify whether they were circumcised or not. And this will be the least popular ministry in all of Cornerstone, right? Uh, these legalists, how did they check? I don't understand. I'd be like, I take your word for it, brother, right? I believe you, right? It's all good. But for them, this was a major issue. Well, we'll get to, to more about it now, why it was such a major issue. But praise God, Paul won. But the battle is not over. The war isn't stopped. The war continues, and it rages on to this day. It has raged throughout church history. So for example, for Luther, it wasn't circumcision. What was it? It was indulgences, right? It was indulgences. What is indulgences? It was the Catholic Church taught that your ancestors did not know Christ. They're in a place called purgatory. And if you give money to the church, the Pope with his authority as a vicar of Christ will release them from purgatory. So more money you give to the church, more ears he will cut off from them spending in this halfway place between heaven and hell. It's more like hell, but not hell, uh, exactly hell. And Pope will release them. It was the issue of free will for for. For Luther, this idea of works where man had freedom to choose and it was up to man to cooperate with God to be saved. And that was Erasmus's main teaching from the Catholic Church. And, and Luther wrote a whole tome, The Bondage of the Will, to refute that. Uh, in more recent history, um, Pastor John Piper uh, fought a battle in his church. Fought it ably and well. It was uh, 1984, I believe. Uh, Pastor Piper was 38 years old. He was a young lad, right? And he had just started his ministry at Bethlehem Baptist Church just over two years ago. A young pastor in a new church. And he understood you have to fight for the gospel, and you have to fight for the implications of the gospel, which is a freedom for the Christian. So he 
put himself on the line. Right? He put his uh, pastoral career on the line. So they tell you, when you go to a new church, don't change anything. Right? Kind of cater to the old guard, members that have been there a long time. Don't rock the boat. Just go with the flow because if, if you don't, you're going to find yourself going to church with the locks changed and without a key. And these things have happened. Well, Pastor Piper at his church, uh, some members came in and older members, the leaders, uh, they wanted to add to the church membership requirement. And the requirement was a good standing member of Bethlehem Baptist promises to never drink and or sell alcohol. Right? And so especially back in that, those days, there were five cardinal sins by which you were almost, you were, this is what a Christian was. You didn't do these five things. They were dancing, smoking, drinking, gambling, and going to see movies, right? So a Christian was, you didn't do these five cardinal sins. And so they wanted to make this a part of membership in the church. You want to be a member of Bethlehem Baptist? Then you promise to never drink alcohol or, or sell alcohol. So what did, how, how did John, Pastor Piper respond? Uh, now, he is a complete teetotaler. That's a term from ancient days, right? It means he completely abstains from alcohol. Pastor Piper, his personal conviction is he does not drink whatsoever for any occasion. And yet, over against these very committed and godly members and leaders of his own church, he opposed this provision. And the whole thing is online. Maybe I'll link it on our pastor's corner this week. But let me read to you an excerpt from his reasoning behind it. He wrote, I want to hate what God hates and love what God loves. And this I know beyond the shadow of a doubt. God hates legalism as much as he hates alcoholism. If any of you still wonders why I believe this after hearing all the tragic stories about lives ruined through alcohol, the reason is that when I go home at night and close my eyes and let eternity rise in my mind, I see 10 million more people in hell because of legalism than because of alcoholism. And I think that is a literal understatement. Satan is so sly, he disguises himself as an angel of light. The apostle says in 2 Corinthians 11:14, he keeps his deadliest diseases most sanitary. He clothes his captains in religious garments and houses his weapons in temples. Oh, don't you want to see his plots uncovered? Legalism is a more dangerous disease than alcoholism because it doesn't look like one. Alcoholism makes men fail. Legalism helps them succeed in this world. Alcoholism makes men depend on the bottle. Legalism makes them self-sufficient, depending on no one. Alcoholism destroys moral resolve. Legalism gives it strength. Alcoholics don't feel welcome in the church. Legalists love to hear their morality extolled in the church. Therefore, what we need in this church is not front-end regulations to keep ourselves pure. We need to preach and pray 
that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither teetotaling nor social drinking, neither legalism nor alcoholism is of any avail with God, but only a new creation, a new heart, Galatians 6.15. The enemy is sending against us every day the Sherman tank of the flesh with its cannons of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. If we try to defend ourselves or our church with peace shooter regulations, we will be defeated even in our apparent success. The only defense is to be rooted and built up in Christ and established in faith, Colossians 2.6, strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, Colossians 1, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, grows with a growth that is from God, Colossians 2.9, from God, from God, and not from ourselves. So, 2,000 years ago, it was circumcision. Four or 500 years ago, it was indulgences. Right? Indulgences and um, the council, the authority of the Pope. Um, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, it was drinking alcohol, dancing, and smoking, and movies. And we can't be smug. We're glad this is all done with. Not going to enjoy the Christian freedom. No. This battle continues to this day. Right? And uh, we learn from Paul what is at stake. And we'll close with how we are to fight the battle. Right? How we are to um, identify these, um, these thieves that steal our freedom and how to counter them by faith in the gospel. Okay? Well, let's go to the text. Uh, verse 1. Um, three points to uh, guide us through these five verses. Three points. The reason for Paul's journey to Jerusalem. The reason for the controversy over circumcision. And thirdly, the response of Paul. So the reason why Paul went to Jerusalem. The reason behind the controversy. And thirdly, the response of Paul. So first of all, we see uh, the reasons for Paul going to Jerusalem. Verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Now, this is a very uh, debated, controversial, complex issue. C.K. Barrett has referred to this issue as, quote, the most celebrated and complicated historical problem in the whole epistle, if not the whole New Testament. Because Paul went to Jerusalem, according to the book of Acts, four times. Now, which of these four times is Paul talking about here in Galatians 2? He first went to Jerusalem in Acts 9, three years after his conversion. And then several years after that, he made a second trip to, get, to take the, um, there's a famine in Jerusalem, and he went and collected offerings from the churches in Macedonia to deliver this gift. He went to Jerusalem in Acts 11. And then a third time in Acts 15, he went to Jerusalem and that is a very important uh, visit because that's when the apostles and elders of, the, of Jerusalem church gathered and they made a, a church decree. They gathered together and had a church council debate on this whole issue of Gentiles becoming Christians and the issue of circumcision or not. And they came to a decision and they made a church-wide decree 
uh, that, is, that was bound, binding to every church. And afterwards, uh, Paul and Barnabas went throughout Gentile churches handing out this decree. And the fourth time Paul went to Jerusalem was in uh, the end of Acts uh, 21 through 28, where he went to be arrested. And he went um, in chains and sent off to Rome. And the question is, is Galatians 2 referring to Acts 11 or Acts 15? Now, this, is, uh, this is relevant. I know it's a little bit tedious, but this is important. Many well-meaning, you know, godly, scholarly Bible students and teachers believe that this refers to his third visit to Jerusalem in Acts 15 because of the so many similarities between Acts 15 and Galatians 2 because they both involve Paul and Barnabas on one side and Peter and James on the other. Both meetings dealt with the issue of circumcision, and both had the same outcome, victory for Paul, right? No circumcision for Gentiles. But once we look closer into this historical details, we find there are market differences. For example, in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are sent by the church in Antioch concerning this issue of circumcision. In Galatians 2, Paul says, no one sent me. I came on my own initiative because of a revelation. In uh, Acts 15, it was a public council, a church-wide gathering, a public debate concerning this issue. In Galatians 2, it was a private discussion. Just the influential leaders Peter, Cephas, and Lord's brother James, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. Galatians 2, second part of verse 2. The the main reason uh, most believe, and I agree, that this refers not to Acts 15, but Acts 11, is because Paul nowhere in the book of Galatians mentions the decree of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. So if he was having all these controversial conflicts and debates and arguments with Judaizers, he could have just said, hey, why are you fighting with me? Why are you arguing with me? This was declared by the apostles in unity in Acts 15 that Gentiles do not need to become Jews to to become Christians. They're not bound to the Mosaic law. They don't have to be circumcised. And this is not what I'm preaching. This is the consensus This is the decree of the apostles. He could have pulled out that decree, right? Controversy is over. The reason Paul does not mention this decree is because it hasn't happened yet. When he was writing Galatians chapter 2, it was still uh, months or years before uh, the Jerusalem council. So, this is uh, Acts chapter 11. Paul went to Jerusalem and he had a private meeting with the leaders there. And he gives us uh, three reasons why he went in Acts 11. First of all, he went because of a revelation given to him by God. We see Paul, a faithful servant of the Lord. God tells him, God speaks to him, and he's the apostle. We're not apostles. God doesn't give us revelation. God doesn't speak to us through dreams and visions and whispers in the night. Right? This is the Apostle Paul. And, and God through Christ told him, give him a revelation, the same word apocalypse as 
Acts 9. God tells him to go to Jerusalem. So in obedience, he goes to Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure what this revelation was, but no doubt it was related to his ministry to the Gentiles and the issue of circumcision. Second, he went to set before them the gospel that he was preaching among the Gentiles. He went went and he declared to them, this is the message that I'm preaching. This is what I'm advocating. So um, there were seemingly a lot of uh, rumors and slander and innuendo spread about the Apostle Paul. The Judaizers are telling the Jerusalem leaders, that Apostle Paul... He is such a coward. He's such a man pleaser. Right? He is twisting the gospel. He's compromised it because he's faced with this sensual barbarians, these non-Jewish people, and that's most of us. I think there are maybe a few Jews here, but we you know how those Gentiles are, right? They're like barbarians. They're animals. They're, they're enslaved to their lusts. So instead of confronting them, confronting their immorality with uh, the law of God, He has compromised the gospel. He has catered to them, and he has taken the law out, right? And so he's preaching uh, adjusted, a truncated, an artificial man-made gospel. So Paul went and said, I'm not. I am not preaching another gospel, a heteros uh, good news. And he preached to them the gospel that they might hear it, and they might be united in in, in the gospel of Christ. The third reason is found in verse 2, last for a cause, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. A difficult clause to say the least. One commenter has said, it's perplexing. A sentence has called forth various interpretations. He's not uh, checking his gospel so much as his gospel ministry. And I think it goes on to verses 6 through 9 just to confirm with them that ministry is a team ministry. And just as God has called Peter to the Jewish people, the circumcised, God has called Paul to the uncircumcised. Right? We're not working against each other. We don't have, um, we have the same gospel and we believe in the same implication of the gospel. Right? So, a Jewish person gets saved and he wants to baptize, he wants to circumcise his children, he is free to do so. He is not prohibited for cultural reasons or for preferential reasons to circumcise his children. So Peter would go to Jews and say, You're Christians now, but you want to circumcise your kids, go right ahead. At the same time, Paul wants to make sure I have this freedom as well. And when I'm preaching to Gentiles and they don't want to be circumcised, they don't need to be circumcised to be approved by God. So he went to make sure that their labor and his labor was not in vain. Right? They're not, he's not uh, divided in his ministry with the other apostles. Uh, that's the reasons for his journey to Jerusalem. Secondly, the reason behind the controversy with, over circumcision. Now, look at verse 3. This is the first time this is mentioned in the book of Galatians. Titus was not forced to be circumcised. This was a big deal for Jewish people. This was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 17. This is how they identified themselves as separate from their neighboring nations. 
every male child would be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. It was a sign that they were part of the elect people of God, of the chosen people of God. Circumcision was so revered that if the eighth day of the child's birth landed on the Sabbath, circumcision trumped the Sabbath. You are not to work on the Sabbath except if it's work of circumcising your child, your, your, your son, then that was allowed. Uh, this um, rite of circumcision was intensified uh, during this time because of their um, uh, hostile environment in which they were living. The Romans were oppressing the Jewish people. Um, Antiochus Epiphany in 175 B.C., Uh, had a reign of terror in oppressing the Jewish people, and he wanted to commit genocide. He wanted to stamp out the Jewish Jewish identity. And the law that he passed was a Jewish son must not be circumcised, and any boy that was found to be circumcised was to be executed immediately. He wanted to stamp out uh, the Jewish people in the land. The the Maccabeans, those who were rebelling against this authority, made it their um, a sign of pride to circumcise their sons and to be circumcised. They all the more valued this, this mark of identity, this ritual in Judaism. It was raised to even a higher status. So much so that even Gentiles who became Jews, no matter the, their age, were forced to be circumcised as well. So they, they missed... They put the ritual over the promise. This was a sign of the covenant that God made to Abraham toward his people. And so the sign was a, a sign, right? Like a, it points to the promise, but they were fixated on the sign. Like today, we're going to practice communion, and you can't focus on the bread. You can't look at the cup and say, wow. You know, this non-believer next to me can't drink this, won't drink this, but I drink this, and this makes me special, and this makes me holy and righteous. No, the communion is a sign of the new covenant that points to the gospel. So our faith is what it points to, not in our act. Likewise with circumcision. But they, they, they lost, they missed the significance, and they lost sight of the promise of God. They were fixated on this external ritual. So... As Apostle Paul enters the scene into gospel ministry, controversy about this issue, you know, engulfs him. Wherever he goes, he has to say the word circumcision, right? <laughs> what a poor guy, right? Every letter he writes, he has to talk about circumcision. And I've got these passages here to verify this, Romans 2, 25 to 29, Romans 3, 1, Romans 4, 9, through 12, Romans 15, 8, Philippians 3, 3 through 5, 1 Corinthians 7, 18 through 20, Colossians 2, 9 through 15, 3, 10 through 11, and even three times in the book of Galatians, he mentions this issue of, Galatia, of circumcision, how any, what he's talking about in Romans 4, even your, your father Abraham, the promise came first, and then he was circumcised. That should tell you Right? Faith is given irrespective of circumcision. Because God credited Abraham's faith as righteousness. 
God didn't bless Abraham because he was circumcised. God blessed Abraham because of his faith. And then he was given the ritual of circumcision. So that Abraham might be a father to everyone, Jews and Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 7.18, his point there was, if you're circumcised, when you became a Christian, don't become uncircumcised. And conversely, if you were uncircumcised and you became a Christian, there is no need. Don't become circumcised because you are a Christian. And then Philippians 3, he's angry here. And he's attacking. Look out for the dogs. These evildoers. What are these evildoers? These mutilators of the flesh. Those who put confidence in the flesh, they should emasculate themselves. Right? Cut the whole thing off if they're so zealous for circumcision. And then in Colossians 3, there is no Jew, Gentile, or Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised. Christ is all and all. In Titus 1.10, he talks about the circumcision party. This group of people who are all into the law of God as Christians. And he uses the words like insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. They must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families by teaching what they ought not teach. Right. So Paul uh, knew this controversy was waiting for him when he was in Jerusalem. So you know what, Paul? Paul's a smart guy. Paul, is, Paul brought a ringer. You guys know what a ringer is? Right? Paul brought a ringer with him. When I was in youth ministry, you know, we would play other youth, minist- youth uh, groups' sports. Right? We would play either basketball or basketball or basketball. Because I don't like baseball, I'm not good in football, and I'm okay in basketball, and I like basketball. And I'm the youth pastor, and we play the sport that I want to play, right? One of the perks of leadership, right? We play basketball. So we would play these youth kids from other churches, and then we would scout them out, right? We would hear about them. How are they? Are they good? Are they big, small, quick, good or bad, right? And if we had heard, man, they got a big man inside. They got a guy who plays varsity basketball. I'll tell my youth kids, go to your school, right? Bring your varsity players, right? Right? And have them come. I don't care if they go to church or not. I don't care if I even know them or not. Have them come, right? And I want them to come and play for us because I want to win. I brought ringers all the time. At the same time, they brought ringers too, so it's okay. It was all corrupt scam in youth ministry. These churches are no good, right? So Paul, likewise, was going to Jerusalem, and he brought a seven-foot center, right? Who was, uh, you know, had, had good, strong hands, right? Can rebound, shoot, and pass. And he was uncircumcised, right? That was a big thing. He didn't care about the size or ability, but he, was, he brought Titus with him. So I don't know if Titus knew this or not. Paul's like, hey, Titus, you want to go to Jerusalem, the city of God? Where Barnabas and I are going, you want to come along with me? Titus is like, oh, yeah, okay, sure, I'll go. But I don't know if he, had any, he knew what he was getting into, but I'll follow along. And Titus, he wasn't just a guy off the street. I mean, he was a godly man, right? Titus... Uh, one talks about he was an overseer uh, over the uh, churches in Crete. Second Corinthians 8.23 calls him my partner, my fellow worker for your benefit. He was a Gentile convert, is a godly man full of the spirit. I mean, he has a book of the Bible named after him, right? That's a godly guy, right? So Paul brought Titus along because Titus was proof, right? Titus was proof. So, all right. I don't know. I haven't thought through this, but if somebody said, hey, you know, Asians can't, Asians aren't good at sports, you know, I'll bring Bob along with me, right? I'll bring Bob along. Here's, look at Bob, right? 
A little older now, but you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, proof, Asian guy can play sports, right? If someone were to say, you know, dispensationalists, they don't know the Bible, they misinterpret the scriptures, they don't know what they're talking about, I'll bring John MacArthur with me, right? And say, look, dispensationalist loves the Bible, knows how to interpret, right? Same thing with Titus, right? He was proof because he had the Holy Spirit within him. Right? He was a godly man. He loved the Lord, loved the church, involved in ministry, he was proof, right? a walking, talking proof that um, circumcision is of no, no value. Right? That Christianity is about faith, not about ex- external rights. Right? Here's living proof. And you know what's, uh, what's amazing? The leaders agreed. Right? Peter, Peter, James, brother of John, uh, Jesus, and John, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, they all agreed right? with the Apostle Paul. They agree with the Apostle Paul that, uh, and so he was not forced to be circumcised. So, you know, Titus came really close to being circumcised unknowingly. What if, like, they forced him, but they agreed he didn't have to be circumcised. So what was Paul saying? Paul saying the Galatian Judaizers, they're lying. They're liars. They're bald-faced liars. Because they're telling you that Jerusalem leaders are forcing Gentile converts to be circumcised, here is Titus. I took him with me to Jerusalem, and we were there together, and the leaders of Jerusalem said, no, no need, right? He is proof that they are lying, that they did not represent uh, uh, true Christianity. They did not represent Peter and James. They are, in fact, uh, false brethren, pseudo-adolfoi, right? False brothers, false Christians, Paul understood this. Paul was making a case. And he was telling them, this is purely cultural, purely preferential. Right? This is up to one's own, 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 own decision. It's not under compulsion. Uh, some have argued, then why did Paul circumcise Timothy in Acts 16? In Acts 16.3, uh, Paul took Timothy along and he had him circumcised. What's going on? In Acts 15, you don't need to be circumcised. Acts 16, he circumcises Timothy well, because Timothy was a Jew, and for Jew, for a Jewish person to enter into synagogues and minister, he would have to be circumcised. So not for his righteousness, but for ministry, Timothy was circumcised. Completely different. For example, did you know to enter into a synagogue as a, as a male, you would have to cover your head? Right? I was in Israel many years ago. We went into a synagogue. And they said, you need to cover your head. And they said, you need to put on a yarmulke. And I said, well, I've got this baseball hat, right? Can I put this on? They're like, sure, go ahead. Long as your head is covered, it's fine. Now, in, in, our, in our culture, right now, I praise God no one's wearing a hat, but it'd be kind of like, it's, it's considered rude, inconsiderate to wear a hat indoors and to wear a hat inside a church worshiping God listening to a sermon. It's the opposite. But in Judaism, you need to cover your head, right? So, if it, if, if, so if, they, if someone said, James, come and preach the gospel in our synagogue, we need to wear a hat, I'd be like, sure, I'll wear a hat. I'll wear any hat, I don't care. But if they said, James, but you got to preach this message. In order to be a Christian, you must always wear your hat. And I would say, no, right? That is adding to the gospel. That is compromising, that's perverting, that's reversing the gospel. At that point, when you mandate anything in addition to the gospel of Christ, you are denying the gospel of grace. We are free. We don't have to wear hats, right? 
But if you want to for evangelism, so that's what's happening in Acts 16 with Timothy. He was, his mom was Jewish, his dad was uh, Gentile, in, in, in Jewish uh, Judaism, the lineage goes to the mom. He was a Jew, so he was circumcised for the gospel ministry. And so that was a controversy, and that's why Paul brought Timothy. And praise God, the decision was no need for circumcision. Now, uh, this continues to this day. Where people want to add to the gospel. This is the perennial danger for the church. Christians are always trying to add something to the gospel. They want to elevate some aspect of Christianity to a place of equal or greater importance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you need to have uh, gospel and tongues. Right? You need to have gospel and an experience. You need to have Jesus and uh, baptism. You need to have Jesus and devotions or Jesus and this kind of preaching, Jesus and this kind of discipleship, Jesus and this kind of ministry. No, the gospel has to stand alone. The gospel is Christ plus nothing. The good news of the cross cannot be improved. It can only be destroyed. If we try in our sincere attempts to improve the gospel, at that point, we have destroyed it. John Stott has said, the Christian has been set free from the law in the sense that his acceptance before God depends entirely upon God's grace in the death of Jesus Christ received by faith to introduce any work of the law and to make our acceptance depend on any bit of our obedience is to it is to destroy the gospel it is to nullify the gospel of grace and so Paul knew this Paul stood fast Paul fought Paul labored Paul knew if at this point he loses the battle what is at stake the freedom of the Christian is at stake. And so this was Paul's response. Look at verse 4. Because the false brothers, when they were in Jerusalem, they were secretly brought in the Jerusalem church. They, were, they, were slipped, they slipped in and spy out our freedom we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul uses unusual words to characterize the activities of these false brothers. Right. Words all derived from the world of political and military espionage applied to the conflict that was raging in the early church. He calls them false brothers again. Right. False Christians, not genuine believers. They slipped in, they snuck in, they infiltrated underneath the radar. They crept in and they came in to spy on Christians in a sneaky manner. Instead of giving oversight, they snuck in to spy on Christians' freedom, to use it to, to catch Christians abusing their freedom and to use that as ammo to bring them back into slavery. 
So there are Christians then and Christians now. They're always sneaking around looking at Christians. And they want to catch people abusing grace. Aha, you drank one time and now you're an alcoholic. Therefore, we should never drink again. Right? You, you know, dance one time and now you're addicted to that show, right? Dancing with the stars and you don't come to church, right? So dancing is wrong, right? You saw one movie and that's why, you know, whatever. You flunked out of school, so you should never see movies again. <clears throat> they want to catch people abusing grace and they want to bring them back into slavery. Paul's response is verse 5. He did not yield in submission even for a moment. Right? So late, t- next week we'll look at Peter. Right? Peter, good heart, not a bright guy. Right? For a while there, he lost his way, sided with the Judaizers, not Paul. He saw right through them from a mile away. He saw these false Christians, what they're trying to do, a mile away. And when they try to subvert the gospel and take Christians back into slavery, back into Egypt, he said, no, not even for a second did he yield to them. He stood firm because Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Right? Stand firm and do not submit yourself to this yoke of slavery. Galatians 5, 2-5, look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That is what is at stake here. Right? So whether it's circumcision, whether it's indulgences, whether it's alcohol, whatever it is, if you're adding it to the gospel, the gospel is at stake and our freedom is at stake. Galatians 5, 13 through 15, you are called to freedom, brothers. Now this freedom is not to indulge in your flesh. It's the freedom to love one another. We'll talk more about that a little later. The whole law is fulfilled and love your neighbor as yourself. So stand firm, Paul said, and, and he stood firm. And he did this so that the gospel and the implication of the gospel, which is freedom, might be preserved for us. That Paul might pass down not just the content of the gospel, but the implication of the gospel, which is freedom. So he lived out the Christian freedom. And he had Christians, and he protected their right to live out the Christian freedom from the law so that we might have this pure gospel and pure implication of the gospel handed down to us so that we might know and enjoy and experience the freedom that we have in Christ. So Luther wrote this. He called this sanctified stubbornness. And I love this. Sanctified stubbornness. For the issue before us is grave and vital. It involves the death of the Son of God, who by the will and command of the Father became flesh, was crucified, died for the sins of the world. If faith yields on this point, the death of God's Son will be in vain then it is only a fable that Christ is the Savior of the world. Then God is a liar, for he has not lived up to his promises. Therefore, our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy. For by it, we are striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ. 
and to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, we lose God. We lose Christ. We lose all the promises. We lose righteousness. We lose faith. And we lose eternal life. So, so Paul practiced sanctified stubbornness. And Luther commends him for that. And Luther commends us to sanctify stubbornness. And what is sanctified stubbornness? It is stubbornness when it is when you're stubborn about the gospel and the message of the gospel, the implication of the gospel. If you're stubborn about how other people are to obey God, then that's just not, that's not sanctity. That's just stubbornness. That's pride. That's arrogance. That's legalism. Right? Who made you Lord over someone else? Or how did you become someone's Savior and Lord? Where did you get this authority? Where did you get this power for you to tell someone else how to live their Christian lives and tell them what is holy and what is unholy when it is not spoken of in Scripture? That is not sanctified stubbornness. That is prideful, sinful, arrogant, evil stubbornness. Sanctified stubbornness is when you stand on the gospel and stand on the principle that we are free from acceptance before God through works of the law because we are justified through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That was Paul's response. Reasons for going, his reason for the controversy, and then his response. So closing thoughts. Closing thoughts. A few of them for our time remaining. I, I, I exhort you, brothers and sisters. I, we need to, this is not a time for laxity, not a time for cowardice, not a time for fear of man. Do not be intimidated by people. Be strong, be courageous. You know what is at stake? The gospel is at stake. And you know what else is at stake? Our freedom as Christians is at stake. Stand firm for the gospel of Christ. Stand firm for the facts of the gospel and the implication of the gospel, first of which is Christian freedom. D.A. Carson said this, Paul refused to circumcise Titus even when he was demanded by these false brothers. Not because it didn't matter to them, but because it mattered so much that if he, that if he acquiesced, he would have been giving the impression that faith, that faith in Jesus is not enough for salvation. That one has to become a Jew first before one can become a Christian. That would jeopardize the exclusive sufficiency of Jesus. Listen to this. He's continuing here. To create a contemporary analogy, if I'm called to preach a gospel among a lot of people who are cultural teetotalers, I'll give up alcohol for the sake of the gospel. But if they start saying, you cannot be a Christian and drink alcohol, I'll reply, pass the wine. Or I'll say, I'm going to have a drink with my meal, glass of wine with my meal. Paul is flexible, and therefore he is prepared to circumcise Timothy when the exclusive sufficiency of Christ is not at stake and when a little cultural accommodation will advance the gospel. And at the same time, he is rigidly inflexible and therefore refuses to circumcise Titus because that is adding to the gospel. Do you understand that? If someone said, you can't be a godly Christian and drink, he's saying we should drink. Conversely, if they say, to be a godly Christian, you have to drink, then we'll never drink again. Right? 
If someone says, if you want to be godly, then you have to drink. You have to do this, do that. We'll never do it again. This is where the controversy rages in a church like ours, a conservative church. It is not so much in the theology section, but it's in the life section, the implications of the gospel. This is where we must stand, faith in Christ, not using freedom as as an opportunity for the flesh, but defending freedom because that is what for what which Christ died for. Secondly, um, I hope I make, make sense here. Listen, listen to this. Um, the false brothers that are coming in, spying on our freedom, trying to enslave us, there's a greater threat than other Christians. Right? There are wolves in sheep's clothing trying to devour Christians, but there's a greater wolf in sheep's clothing, and that's inside of us. Right inside of us, right? You guys see that movie Teen Wolf, right? The guy is a teenager, is a basketball player, going through puberty, and he's a wolf, right? <laughs> so he goes to the bathroom and, you know, right? So that's us, right? Think of yourself this way. I'm Teen Wolf, right? So you think, oh man, legalists, right? These people trying to take away my freedom and trying to spy on me. We're blind to the greatest wolf out there is in our own hearts, right? Greatest one who's trying to enslave us is ourselves. And how, how does this happen? Paul said this in Galatians 6 concerning circumcision. Galatians 6, 13 through 14. Even those who are circumcised, who are circumcised, do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. This word boast, they want to boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ our Lord by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So for us, it's not circumcision. It's not indulgences. I don't think it's really alcohol or drinking or smoking or dancing or movies. But for us, functionally, what enslaves us, what what takes us away from the gospel is anything that we boast of in our hearts. Anything. Right? Anything that you and I boast of at that moment functionally becomes as important to the gospel, if not more, and it causes you to uh, judge fellow Christians. So let me explain. Like, let's say you boast in being smart, and you despise people who are not. Let's say you boast on being a good parent, then you look down on people who are not good parents. Let's say you boast on being a relational person. You're frustrated, right? You, you look down and despise and judge people who struggle relationally, right? And so your relationships are all based on suspicion. You're always checking each other to see where each other falls short. And whatever you're boasting in, through that you judge one another. So all these crazy things with, through which Christians judge one another, uh, whether... Your child demand feeds or schedule feeds. Now, for singles, it doesn't make sense to you, but for parents, this is a big deal, right? I mean, a church actually split over this issue because a, a group of them th- believe that if you demand feed your infant, you're child-centered, right? The godly way, God's way is to schedule feed them, not to give in to a child's demands, right? And so they would judge each other based upon this extra-biblical value. 
right? The whole issue of homeschooling or private school or public school, right? Church of Spokane, that was the major issue, right? Where homeschoolers, they would not allow their children to interact in the same church with public school kids because public school is evil, right? Um, the issue of uh, disciplining children, right? Do you discipline right? Do you discipline often enough? Do you discipline biblically or unbiblically? And based on, I discipline biblically, and so judge one another. Do both parents work, right? You judge one another, right? Young child is a mom working outside the home, right? Um, a woman college, seeking a career, right? They're going to college, graduate school, doctoral studies, and therefore, you, you boast, I, I, don't, I didn't choose that route. I'm, I'm choosing the, the godlier route, right? Uh, dating instead of courting. Uh, they, they're dating, but we're courting. I don't know what the difference is, right? <laughs> How they spend money. Uh, what do they drink? Alcohol. We had a guy in our church. Uh, one of the reasons he left our church is because we celebrate Christmas. Now, what are you talking? We don't celebrate Christmas. Well, you say, we don't have a tree, you know, in our worship, you know, service, right? We don't. But you say the word Christmas, right? You observe that day as Christmas Sunday, and Christmas is a pagan holiday. And one of the reasons he gave for leaving our church was because of Christmas, right? How absurd! So he boasted in that he's such a pure Christian. He doesn't he doesn't observe Christmas or Easter, right? Guys, get, people get hung up on this. And anything you value apart from Christ, what happens? That becomes your agenda, right? That becomes your, uh, you become a spy and you're a fellow Christian. Oh, you're a Christian, great. But, oh, do you schedule feed, feed your kids? Oh, you don't. Okay, let me just share with you some literature. Because the real agenda is I want to have you be godly like me, right? Or do you, do you send your kids to private school? Oh, let me give you some information. Right? Oh, you're dating this girl? Well, let me give you some you know, online links. Right? Right? You, you practice this, right? You, have, you live your Christian life in a certain way? Right? Let me, uh, you be, it's because of the agenda rather than the gospel alone. Rather than un- unity in the gospel. And what happens is relationships are severed. There's division. All this animosity, suspicion, and judging and con- condemnation of one another. And how is this slavery? If you let this legalism flourish in your heart, you are breaking the most important command, loving one another. You'll find you don't have intimate relationships. You'll find people don't want to share their lives with you because they have a, they'll have, always have a list of 10 things you're doing wrong. And so you'll be enslaved to yourself. You'll be all by yourself, right in your own eyes. Everybody's wrong about something, apart from the gospel, and you'll be enslaved to this, this righteousness. And you'll be enslaved from obeying the gospel, which is loving God, loving one another. That's the purpose. Right? So functionally, this is how... right? He's bo- the boasting in our hearts enslave us and lead us just like the Galatian Christians and just like these false brothers functionally for us, not positionally, leads us astray. The way back home is the gospel. Way back home is the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I mean, we love you, right? I mean, I, I love this church. I love, 
I love our members, the elders, and we love you. What do we want from you? We want you to major on the major thing. Right? Be enamored by Jesus Christ. Love, receive the love of Christ, and let Christ's love dwell in your hearts richly, and have that bear fruit. And let God take care of your sanctification. And let God take care of your brothers and sisters' sanctification. And you would trust in the Lord. And this, this leads us directly to communion. Right? Let us remember, right? Let's not cherish the sign. Right? Let's not get hung over of the bread and the cup. Let's look at what the bread and the cup is pointing to, which is what happened 2,000 years ago, how Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins to set us free from the burden of the law. Let us, therefore, as we remember this gift, let us continue to walk in the gospel and walk in freedom. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. and Thank you so much for the scriptures. We thank you for wisdom of, of Paul through the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for the power of the Gospel. And how the Gospel knows how sinful our hearts are. And how we're so corrupt that we would even corrupt this corrupt Jesus. Corrupt the Gospel. Corrupt the Bible. And make it into this religious thing. And make it into this thing where we want to use it to exalt ourselves and exalt what we do rather than what you have done for us. God, we appeal to you for grace and forgiveness and mercy. Lord, we repent in ashes and dust because of all our filth of our righteousness, because of our prevailing pride that knows no bounds. Lord, we run to the cure, we run to our Savior and Lord Jesus, and we take the bread and the cup, and he's our physical reminders, physical signs of the price that was paid to purchase our freedom. Lord, may we rest in this truth and look to you and hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.